How can we make the world better? By making ourselves better. The Dr. Joe Show explores how you can make positive personal change by using his groundbreaking and highly effective I Am approach to understand who we are and why we do what we do. Your small changes can have big effects. Join us now for the Dr. Joe Show with Mark Stiles of Stiles Law, Thomas McCoy, and your host, Dr. Joe Schran. Oh, welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. Ooh, Tom, that was really great. I mean, gosh, I wonder, could you introduce our guest for tonight? Oh, yeah, Dr. Joe. Tonight we are honored to have Dr. Jennifer Francis. Jennifer Francis is a senior scientist at the Woodwell Climate Research Center in Falmouth, Massachusetts. Previously, she spent 24 years as a research professor in the Department of Marine and Coastal Sciences at Rutgers University, where she studied the Arctic climate system and how rapid Arctic change is affecting areas beyond the Arctic, particularly extreme weather in the Northern Hemisphere. Jennifer earned a BS in meteorology from San Jose State University in 1988 and a PhD in atmospheric sciences from the University of Washington in 1994. She and her husband circumnavigated the globe by sail during the early 1980s, including the Arctic, which is where her interest in the region began. They now live on their catamaran eight months out of the year, riding the winds of the Caribbean, Central America, and now the South Pacific. Welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Wow, Dr. Francis, what what an incredible bio. So, <laughs> I mean, so you're on a catamaran for eight months of the year, just roaming around? Yep, that's what we do these days. Um, this will be our sixth season of living on our, our catamaran, um, basically from November through June. And then during the summer, we come back to our family home in Massachusetts. So we're, we're super lucky and, um, we really love being, living on a floating home and being out in the, in the world, um, experiencing a lot of different cultures, a lot of different weather patterns, a lot of different climate zones. Um, it's it's a really cool way to, to travel because you have your home with you. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can go places that many places people can't get to because, you know, you have to rely on airplanes or you have to rely on, you know, transportation and hotels and that sort of thing. And we don't have to do that. So uh, it's, a, it's a way of traveling and living that we've been doing a lot of over our year, years together. We've, we've been super lucky to be able to do that. And uh, so, but we're also super lucky that these days we can actually work, keep working from yeah. a situation like that. And that's one of the wonderful things of COVID actually was it made that kind of lifestyle more um, acceptable and uh, normal even. So, uh, so both my husband and I are still working part time, and um, but doing it from a moving, moving platform. Awesome. <laughs> Fantastic field you know, research, yeah, or see research or something. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, one of my phrases: uh, I've worked hard to be this lucky. You know, and I'm sure that that you and your husband have the same. Worked hard to be this lucky. Um, so sometimes uh, hard work isn't enough, but uh, yeah. <laughs> We've That's, been lucky in many ways, in addition to having careers that that enables us to do that. Yeah, so true. Yeah, but but what a valuable career that that's contributing so much. My my eldest daughter, Sophie of Science with Sophie, has just made a cross country trip in an electric vehicle, trying to figure out you know how how that's working. So she may actually join us tonight uh, at some point because she's very interested in this whole field. So Great. tell me tell me a bit more about the work that you're doing now. Yeah, so the work I'm doing now, um, it stems from the work I've been doing my whole career, which has been mostly focused on the Arctic, which is at the top of the globe, far away from where most people live. Um, we know that it's changing very fast up there. It's warming in the Arctic about four times faster than the globe as a whole. And the Arctic has a very important role in the global climate system. So when you change one part of the system as much as the Arctic is changing, you've got to expect it to affect the rest of the globe because everything is connected. So I started out studying the Arctic itself and how it functions and why it's changing, how it's changing. 
But then I realized there were all these connections. And it kind of goes back to my undergraduate degree in meteorology, thinking about how that rapid warming there would affect weather patterns, you know, down here, farther south, where billions of people live in, in the North American continents, uh, North, Northern Hemisphere continents. Um, and so, you know, I, I just kind of got thinking about that and came up with a, a hypothesis, which I then went on and did some research and wrote a first paper that came out in 2012, and it made the front page of the New York Times. It was a very new idea, and it got a lot of attention. Um, and that thrust me into a very different uh, direction for a lot of how I spend my time now, which is in science communication. So not only do I do research, but I spend a lot of time thinking about how to take some of these very complicated uh, climate um, uh, processes and events and you know, the science of it and make it understandable for anyone, because it's happening all around us. The climate crisis is here. The change is happening very quickly, and a lot of people now are being affected directly. And so explaining to people, you know, we expected these kinds of things to happen. This is why they're happening. This is how they're connected back to the Arctic and how it's changing so fast. But I now go beyond the Arctic as, you know, a single cause or at least an influence, and and really talk about how various aspects of the climate system are changing and how they are affecting extreme weather and weather patterns um, all around the globe now, mostly. So, um, you know, the story people... has gotten broader and broader. <laughs> so, so tell me, so what was the insight back in 2012 that caught people's attention? So the insight was that... Um, the, the, the fact that the Arctic is warming so much faster means that the temperature difference between the Arctic, which is normally very cold, and the areas farther south is getting smaller because the Arctic is warming so much faster. And that temperature difference is really critical because it is what um, is the main driver behind the jet stream, the jet stream being this strong river of wind that circles the northern hemisphere, this one in the southern hemisphere too, way up high over our heads up where jets fly. And the jet stream creates all the weather that you see on your TV weather map, the high pressure areas, the low pressure areas, the storms, the dry, sunny conditions, the winds. The jet stream is really responsible for creating all of those weather patterns. So, so, so let, me, let me just ask you quickly. Here. So, is is the Arctic warming four times faster because it was so much colder to begin with that that it's easier to warm up? No, no, no. it's okay. it's because of processes in the climate system that are vicious cycles, which means they're also called positive feedbacks. Mm -hmm. So you will know about this as radio show producers. You know what a positive feedback means in sound because you get sound feeding back into your microphones and then it turns into this very loud screaming. Well, the same kind of thing happens in the climate system. So that what this means is that if you have a change, say you've got a warming that happens, that causes something else to change, which feeds back to that original warming, making it even worse. Mm. So in the case of the Arctic, um, there are Many, there are quite a few of these positive feedbacks or vicious cycles that are causing the Arctic to warm faster. The easiest one to explain and to visualize is you know that the Arctic Ocean is covered by sea ice. That's ice that's floating on the water. It's formed by freezing seawater. So what's happening is that um, that ice, which we know is very bright and white, and it reflects most of the energy that comes from the sun right back to outer space, so it never enters the climate system at all. So that ice plays a really important role in keeping the the world cool. It's hmm. uh, it's it's the world's air conditioner. You can think of it that way. So as you warm the climate system, it starts melting that ice. What's underneath that ice? Open ocean. 
that open ocean is very dark. It absorbs all of the sunshine that hits it. And so now you've got more of the sun's energy being absorbed into the climate system. It warms that ocean water, which melts more ice, which means that it retreats even more and more, even more of the sun's energy goes into the ocean, warms it up even more, melts more ice, this is the positive feedback. So this is happening in space and the, I don't know if you saw in the headlines this week, but the every summer, the amount of sea ice, and this is tracked very carefully um, by satellite, uh, reaches its smallest size about this time of year every year. Um, this year, it was the sixth lowest on record. The record lowest ever was in 2012, but it's been very, very low ever since. And we're expecting to see the Arctic Ocean become ice-free in the summertime, probably within the next 20 to 30 days. Wow. Well, that's that's not a very good process and progress for mm-hmm. our polar caps and our ice mm-hmm. caps. And the the thing that's that's terrifying about it is not only, you know, could we be drowning in this, but where would we go to survive? And so we didn't get a chance to really focus that much. I, I distracted us. Sorry about mm-hmm. that. Um, about the jet stream, this river of mm-hmm. wind. So Jane, yeah. can you give us more about that. Sure. So what we did in that first paper, which you asked about, that made it to the front page of the New York Times, what was so, um, I think the new thinking behind it that we came up with was um, the fact that the Arctic, as I said, is warming so much faster means that this north-south difference in temperature between the Arctic and the areas farther south is getting smaller, and that North-south temperature difference is what creates the jet stream, which in turn creates all of our weather. So as we make that north-south temperature difference smaller, because the Arctic is warming so much faster, that means the west-to-east winds of the jet stream are getting weaker. And we know that when the jet stream's winds get weak and they fluctuate, you know, day-to-day they fluctuate, When they're in a weakened state, we tend to see the jet stream take bigger north-south swings as it travels around the northern hemisphere. Now, the reason that's important is because those north-south waves, they really are waves when you look on a map. Those waves are what create the weather systems, the high pressures, the low pressures, the storms, and so forth. And when they get big in a weakened jet stream situation, that means that the weather that you're experiencing in, lo- in your location is going to get stuck. It's going to last longer. It's going to feel like it's been dry for days and days and days, maybe even weeks, or it's been raining day after day, or it's been cold for weeks, or heat wave for weeks and weeks. It's whatever weather you're experiencing, of course, depends on the season. But the idea being that as we uh, warm that Arctic really fast, it's going to cause weather patterns to become more persistent. And persistent weather patterns often lead to extreme weather events. So it was our hypothesis that this is going to happen as we continue to warm the Arctic, and we were able to provide some evidence that it is already happening. And many other people have since um, taken on this topic and studied it and we're, we're, we've seen more and more evidence um, that this, in fact, is standing out and is true. So, so let me see if I can understand this. So because the jet stream is weakening, and the jet stream is the thing that basically moves the weather, is that fair to say? It not only moves it, it creates it. Creates so it. It creates the, the dynamics in the atmosphere. So the upward motions and the downward motions, these are all very complicated things. But it, it's not just about moving weather systems. It actually makes them. Hmm. It makes those highs and it makes those lows. And so because the jet stream is weaker, how, how does that actually make these weather patterns last longer? Is it, they're just, they staying. I mean, because we're, yeah. we're seeing this all the time. I mean, people... That's why I really wanted you on the show because I, mm-hmm. I wanted people to, to try to understand this. Because, you know, yeah. we think of weather... I don't think people really understand. I, I know I don't understand it as much as I did 
Yeah, it's complicated. There's a lot to, a lot to get your head around. Yeah. Um, so getting back to these north-south waves I was describing, when those waves are small, so they're, you know, there's little ripples if you were looking at a, a map of what the jet stream looked like today. When they're small, they move quickly. And the way we would experience that on the surface would be, okay, it's rainy today, and then we get a couple nice days, and then we get some more rain because the weather systems are moving quickly across the North American continent, say. But when they get big, when they take these big north-south swings, the dynamics of the atmosphere with those big waves, those big waves just don't move very fast from west to east. It's kind of a fundamental aspect of the way the atmosphere works. And so I don't know if you can, uh, if you remember back uh, when there was a, a big heat wave in the Pacific Northwest in June of 2021. It was a record-smashing heat wave, and people are still talking about it and studying it because it was so unusual. Well, the jet stream at that time was coming in from the Pacific Ocean and taking a huge northward swing up into Alaska and then dipping down into the middle of North America and then continuing on. And that huge northward swing there allowed all the tropical air from the south to penetrate way up into British Columbia. And because it was such a big wave, it stayed in one place for a long time. And that heat wave lasted uh, for a very long time. And there's other aspects to it that also perpetuated it. But the idea is that when we see it, when we have a weaker jet stream, we tend to get these big waves happening more often, which means we're going to see uh, weather systems of all sorts move much more slowly from west to east. And that creates very persistent conditions that can lead to long-lived droughts, long-lived heat waves, long-lived cold spells, long-lived flooding events because of it, it's raining for days and days. So um, this is the general idea. And does that then perpetuate the difficulty with the jet stream? Because now the weather's staying in one place more. Mm-hmm. And then that has a, is that the positive loop to that feedback? There is a positive uh, feedback loop there that um, comes into play when it gets into one of these wave patterns. It's true because when you get these big waves, not only is it creating, say, a heat wave in one place, it's also transporting more heat up to the Arctic. Right. And so it's contributing to the big warming that's happening up there, which is melting more ice and more snow. And uh, And methane. Yeah, releasing more methane into the air. That's right. Methane being a very powerful greenhouse gas. Um, So I don't think people know this, is that methane pipelines... It just takes a 3% uh, escape rate for it to be worse than coal. Methane is a very potent greenhouse gas. It takes much less of it to have the same impact as uh, the same number of molecules of carbon dioxide, for example. And there are massive pockets of it in the uh, permafrost in Siberia. You know, I, I just want to pause for a moment, Jen, and just ask you, how do you keep your optimism about the planet as you're learning all of this stuff? Yeah, it's a lot to take in um, because we are on the front lines of learning what's happening in the climate system before the public does, usually. Um, and it is a lot of bad news, for sure. Um, but what keeps me going is um, I know, especially the next generation, uh, my kids um, and their generation, they are all about not wanting to know about exactly the science behind all this necessarily, but they just want to know what to do about it. Hmm. They're out there getting careers that mean something. And they don't, it's not necessarily becoming a scientist. It could be becoming a lawyer and, uh, you know, getting into environmental law and fighting some of these regulations and, uh, you know, some of these messes that have been created and making sure that the companies and or whoever it is that created it are uh, are being blamed and, and they're having to pay. Um, or it could be social scientists, you know, figuring out how to uh, get groups to uh, change policy and move in the right direction. So what that's one of the ways that I'm very um, buoyed in, in this gloomy <laughs> situation. The other thing I see are 
communities really making big differences in um, in their lives so that they're not only uh, adopting more renewable energy paths, switching away from fossil fuels to towards renewable energy, but they're also getting ready for the uh, continued extreme weather events that we know are going to get worse for a while, no matter what we do, but they're getting ready for that. So this is the two sides of the coin that, that I see happening, especially at the community and even the state level in the United States, um, is that our, that real change is happening. And um, it's really exciting to see that. It's not happening fast enough, but I think people are starting to wake up and realize that this is truly a crisis and that um, the pace of change really needs to be stepped up. This uh, summer, I think, really made that clear. Like, I describe it as a kid having 60 years to do a school project, waiting till the last second, Mm -hmm. and then complaining that it's so unfair. (laughs) Yeah. Why do you think people just didn't believe it for so long? And I think there are still people like that. There certainly are people who don't believe it. Some people are willingly not believing it um, because they don't want to change their lives. They don't want to stop driving a big car. They don't want to stop flying in airplanes whenever they feel like it. They don't want to stop eating meat uh, five times a week. Because those are the kinds of changes that, um, those are some of the changes that need to happen uh, to, to get us moving faster in the right direction. But there are other people who know what's going on. They know how bad it is. They know what we have to do. And they are not just um, saying they don't believe it, but they're also spreading disinformation about it. And those people have... Uh, usually economic reasons for that. They're somehow uh, dependent on the fossil fuel industry. They work in that industry. Um, that's where their livelihoods come from, and they don't want to see their careers go down the tube, which isn't what we're saying at all. I mean, uh, some there is some um, movement away from fossil fuels by the fossil fuel companies, um, certainly not enough and certainly not fast enough. But um, there's a lot of... More than anything, I think. Yes, I agree. There's a lot of greenwashing happening there and, and a lot of disinformation being financed by um, by them. And they've done an incredibly successful job of it. And as a result, many people in the public have been uh, confused. It seemed um, like if they didn't have to believe it because there's this supposedly plausible other explanation and uh, getting them off the hook of, of having to make all these changes in their lives, um, then they're willing to go that route. So, uh, but I think more and more people now are realizing that they've been duped. Um, there's been all this, uh, all these lies. Honestly, their lies being spread um, in their communities, in their states, by their leaders, by some business leaders. Um, but I think that's that tide is starting to change because people are seeing their own lives, their own pocketbooks, um, their friend, their family, their friends all around the world being affected uh, directly by things like extreme weather events, by um, tides that are flooding their streets, even when there is no storm, um, you know, all of these different ways, you know, forest fire smoke coming down over New York City and making their air quality the worst they've ever recorded. I mean, all of these events, just one after another, and as you said, Thomas, this summer was a real poster child for that. Um, you know, Mother Nature is pissed off. <laughs> we have harassed her, and uh, we're starting to see that response. Yeah, that's but why I, I like to say I, that it's not that the Earth is in trouble. The Earth is fine. We're in trouble. Yeah, and I, I appreciate the unconscious pun that the tide is beginning to change. I. I hope it certainly is. And this information of this, you know, this information that happens is absolutely one of the things that's corrupting all of us. But but there's there's so much to this. It's it's almost it's almost as if the, the planet is fighting back. I mean, if this keeps going, human beings will not have many places to survive but so where are we going with the research with this and and 
how do we how do we begin addressing this? Yeah. So first, I want to just respond to what you just said there. Um, you know, the human beings are very resourceful. Um, we will survive, and there are places where the changes will be tolerable. They'll be manageable. Um, but there are huge swaths of the world where it'll be uninhabitable, hmm. um, especially places around the, in the tropics where it's already bordering on, um, being too hot for human bodies to exist. I mean, there's a threshold of temperature, and especially if you can combine that with humidity, where your body cannot shed heat fast enough to, uh, to be able to, to exist. I mean, your, your, your health will just, um, you won't be able to live there anymore. You're just going to be mind, sous vide in the air. Yeah. Never mind the fact that crops won't grow, animals mm-hmm. won't be able to survive. You know, there are places in the world where that, um, we're already, we've already seen that happen in short periods of time. Um, especially this summer, some of the heat waves have exceeded those thresholds, but they're going to expand in scope and then going to expand in time as well as the Earth gets warmer. And that is one of the most direct connections between the warming climate because of the extra greenhouse gases that we've been dumping into the atmosphere for decades and decades now and the types of extreme weather that we know are going to occur more often. So heat waves is probably the clearest solid bold line connecting the climate crisis to extreme weather. Heat waves are going to get longer, they're going to get more intense, they're going to get bigger, they cover more area. We already saw in the last few years places that are that have had deadly heat waves that you know you don't ever see heat waves there. So this is exactly what uh, scientists for a long time now have been saying would happen. Another very direct connection is because the air is warming and the oceans are warming, they're evaporating more moisture into the air. We're sucking moisture out of the ocean and, in, and from the land as well, and there's more water vapor in the atmosphere than this water vapor, I think, is a very underappreciated aspect of climate change. It has three really important impacts. First of all, that water vapor is also a greenhouse gas. So this is another one of those feedback loops that we were talking about because the warming is causing more evaporation, which is putting more water vapor in the air, which is also a greenhouse gas, which is trapping even more heat, causing more evaporation, dot, dot, dot. And so... It's, it's exacerbating the, the global warming, basically. The second aspect of that water vapor is that it is fuel for storms. When water vapor, which is a gas, you can't see it, condenses into a cloud, it releases heat into the atmosphere. That process is what drives storms. It drives hurricanes, it drives nor'easters, it drives thunderstorms all of the storms that we know about. So because there's more water vapor in the air, there's more energy for storms, and storms are going to get stronger. The third way is very straightforward. There's more moisture in the air, and so when a storm does form, it has more moisture to work with, and so we're seeing a very clear increase in the frequency of heavy precipitation events. So these are downpours. They're even heavy snowstorms. And this is a really clear signal that we've been measuring. Um, the northeast part of the United States has seen something like a 55% increase in the frequency of heavy precipitation events just since the late 1950s. So this is also very clear. You think about the flooding that happened in Vermont this summer or in western Massachusetts this summer. These are exactly the kinds of events that we know are going to happen more often as we continue to run the globe. So uh, the third very clear connection between climate change and extreme weather is drought. And as I said, as we warm the air, that allows more moisture to get sucked out of the earth, basically. It dries the soil out. And once the soil gets dry, it heats up faster. And here's yet another positive feedback loop, because once that soil gets dried out and it warms up faster, it warms the air above it even more, 
and that even increases that uh, evaporation and desiccation process even more. So droughts tend to feed themselves because of this this feedback loop. And of course, drought leads to wildfire, and wildfire is also um, a very clear connection to the climate change. What is less clear in terms of research um, that is ongoing right now, which is what your question was about, we finally got to that, um, are things like this connection to the jet stream, because the circulation, the winds of the atmosphere are very complicated. They're affected by many things. They're affected not just by the warming of the Arctic that I was talking about, but we're also seeing ocean heat waves. So big areas of the oceans are way warmer than normal right now. And those have a huge impact on the jet stream and on storm patterns. I'm pretty sure most people by now have heard that we're in an El Nino situation now that developed just in the last few months. Well, for the last previous three years, we were in a La Nina situation, which is just the opposite. One is the La Nina is when you have colder than normal ocean temperatures off of the west coast of South America, extending across um, along the equator towards the west. And now we're in the opposite phase, which is an El Nino, which is much warmer than normal temperatures in that same region. And that's just another form of an ocean heat wave, but it is a naturally fluctuating, fluctuating one, unlike the others that are happening simultaneously around the globe right now. So this makes it really complicated to figure out exactly what is causing any given weather extreme at any given time, because those Ocean heat waves are having a huge impact. They're putting a ton of heat into the air. They're putting a lot of moisture into the air. And as we were just talking about, those things um, affect storms. They increase drought. They do all all kinds of uh, bad things to, to weather patterns. So, um, yeah, there's a lot going on. There's a lot <laughs> going on. And again, it can cause so much stress in all of us, which then some people will just you know, not want to deal with it. You know, one of the phrase we have in psychiatry, denial is not just a river in Egypt. You know, we just sometimes don't want to deal with it. Yeah, but, denial and doomism is something that we deal with for sure. In, or in delusion. Yeah. yeah. We'll have it, carbon capture. It, I mean, if, if only there was a way to sort of get the, the floods over to the drought areas mm -hmm. and the places that are too dry over to the flooding areas, there, there's no way to, to really influence this jet stream, is there? Well, it's funny you should mention those specific things because that is another aspect that's under research right now are these fluctuations from one extreme to the other. And those are also increasing. If you think about uh, what was going on in the western U.S. up until this past winter. It, they were under an extreme, intense drought situation that had lasted for several years in a row. But then along came last winter, and they had record-breaking snows and rainfalls and atmospheric rivers. I mean, it was uh, some record-breaking precipitation in the western states last winter. So this flip-flop from extremely dry to extremely wet um, is, is, has a term actually. It's called weather whiplash. <laughs> Just like whiplash in a car accident. Um, and this is also expected to increase. In fact, this is one of my research topics is looking at these whiplash events from one persistent weather pattern to a very different one that, to follow that. And we've seen that happen in Europe this summer, for example. It was, they were, it was hot and wildfires in Greece and that region, and then the next thing you know, they were having floods. So um, this is already happening, and um, and we're I think we're already seeing an increase in the frequency of these wild swings, um, and our research is bearing this out, that it looks like um, not only is it happening, but it looks like it's going to happen much more often as we go forward in time. And then how will that sort of influence the Arctic? Well, how will it influence the Arctic? Um, I would say there isn't really a direct connection back to the Arctic in terms of these weather whiplash events. Um, it's experiencing them all as well. 
Um, it is having its own heat waves and, and cold spells. Um, up there, a heat wave is usually welcome because it's a change from extreme cold to something that's a little less uncomfortable. Um, but I wouldn't say the Arctic is really the place where that's going to have um, a big impact. It's, it's really more uh, down here where we all live, and it's affecting our agriculture. It's affecting um, animal husbandry. It's affecting all kinds of things, uh, recreation, um, you name it. So, um, so, so, in in the years that that you've been traveling the world on the ocean, have you seen a difference in the tides and the intensity of storms? I mean, how how have you managed these changes in your travels? So I wouldn't say that I've observed a change in weather per se, but what I have seen is the result of changes, especially sea level rise. And we haven't really talked about sea level rise, which does have a very strong Arctic connection. Um, I've seen um, islands that used to exist on the chart that are no longer there. Mm. They weren't high islands to start with. They were just low sand islands with a few coconut trees on them. And even though our charts were only two years old, that island is now a shoal, meaning that it's underwater all the time. Um, I've seen many areas where the erosion along beaches uh, is really obvious, and you know, trees falling into the water, uh, banks of the of the behind the beach being just eaten away. Um, so those kinds of of changes are really obvious, and you hear people talk about uh, you know, how how dry it's been or how wet it's been or you know just um, the extremes that happen to individual places, which are are very difficult to connect to climate change um, directly, but uh, you, you definitely hear more and more of these kinds of, of anecdotal uh, evidence. So much to absorb here, the sea mm -hmm. change of our lives. Tom, how's, how's this having an impact on you hearing these stories? Well, I'm an insufferably big picture thinker. So I, I always look at like, how is how are people going to react to this? What's this going to look like 10 years from now? And I mean, it's the topic for another episode, really, but the cruelty it's going to inspire in others or the compassion. I'd like to hope it's the latter. I'd like to hope that, you know, we really are all in this together. You know, it's you all want the same thing, which is to feel valued by somebody else. And right now we have an opportunity, I hope, to remind ourselves that our planet needs to feel valued. It needs what we can do. And I hope there are things that we can do. That gets to the two truths of the I am. The first truth, because everything is connected, our home domain, we're talking about our home domain of our planet, folks. The social domain, which is the way our planet is in the universe and how that's influencing things. The IC, which is the way we see ourselves, the way we think others see us. And we're seeing our planet differently now, I hope, than we did even 20 years ago. It's unfortunate that we are, but we are. And then the biological domain, which is all of us and what we can do. Because these domains interact, a small change can have a big effect. So, Jennifer, what small change can you recommend to our listeners or small changes given what we're talking about tonight. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so before I talk about that, I just wanted to respond to what you just what you just said about the planet having these four branches. And I would I would add to the biological branch, um, you know, all of the living things, not just humans, but all of the living things on this planet. Fair enough. Um, you know, we are doing this damage to the planet. Um we know that the climate has changed in the past, and oftentimes you'll hear people argue about our influence, and they'll say, well, the climate has always changed. You know, this is just another change. Well, that kind of speaks to the branch that the planet is in the solar system, as you said. And those previous climate changes, before humans were ever around, were caused by the way our planet interacts with with other parts of the solar system. 
So the Earth's orbit is not circular around the sun. It varies. It's sometimes it's stretched more elongated and sometimes it's a little more circular. And those kinds of variations change the way the sun's energy um, is is distributed around the Earth. And that's one of the big ways. The other big way is the Earth's tilt relative to um, our orbit around the sun changes over time as well. So sometimes the North Pole is tilted a little more towards the sun, and sometimes it's tilted a little more straight up and down. Those kinds of natural fluctuations that have been going on for millions and millions of years are the are why our climate has changed in the past. And in fact, if only natural forces like those were operating right now, we would be in a cooling cycle. The natural climate system would be heading towards an ice age. I mean, it would take a long, 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 long time, but that's what we would be doing. And instead, we're on this very extreme, abrupt um, warming situation, and we know and we've known for a hundred years that by putting more greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, we would cause warming. We know the physics of why this happens. So getting back to your question, what little things um, I would do. I think uh, we need to get past little things, actually. We need to do some big things. And uh, so when I'm asked this question, you know, people often say, well, what can I do? I'm just me, you know? I'm just one person. Um, it's amazing what one person can do. You start in your own community, you start in your own home, and you uh, just start doing the right things. You know, you change your behavior a little bit. You start to influence your neighbors. Um, you know, people hear about, you know, they're trying to recycle, they're trying to eat less meat. And these things seem really small, but they do add up if it's, if it's a whole, you know, if all of us um, could do these sorts of things. Um, but what really, uh, I think makes a big difference is if you, uh, start in your community and you either get involved in a planning board, an energy committee of some sort, if you have one in your town. If you don't, you can start one, you know, help your town start moving away from fossil fuels. I mean, a lot of towns are banning any new, uh, fossil fuel infrastructure, for example, uh, trying to go all electric. Um, our town, for example, now gets all of its electricity from some wind turbines the next town over. There are all of these kinds of opportunities that exist, and there's a lot of money on the table, too, from state uh, incentive programs and federal incentive programs that are helping communities uh, start moving in the right direction. So um, my little thing is to try to get people to uh, to just get involved in their communities and um, not just, you know, your own behavior, but try to get your whole community start thinking in the right direction. Yeah. I was just researching this the other day about uh, electric vehicles and how mm -hmm. the government will pay up to, I think, $50,000 for, for community to build electric power stations. And that that's not just confined to one. So... I, I'm all for that. It would be fantastic if towns could begin accessing that and changing some of their paradigm, especially yeah. some of the towns that, that have, um, you know, uh, places that, that sell cars. I mean, we don't have many electric cars being sold here in our town because I don't think we have many electric chargers. Mm -hmm. so yeah. I wonder whether there could be some cascade effect there. There are grants for those things now. Um, there, There's a new federal incentive for um, municipal uh, solar installations. They're in not just municipal, but even nonprofits and individuals. There's a 30% tax credit now that's brand new, and that's really to help um, all of us start leaning into solar. Solar is, I think, the way to go. Um, offshore wind is going to make a big dent too, but um, you know, there's more and more solar. It doesn't make any noise. It doesn't cause any pollution. And more and more people are realizing that they, as their electric bills go up, um, they could put solar on their roof or they could join a solar community garden and uh, and save an unbelievable amount of money, especially as electricity gets more expensive. Yeah, I mean, it's the sun, folks. I mean, we can, we're mm -hmm. allowed to take its energy as long as we can figure out how to channel it and use it. 
Mm-hmm. And we That's, know how to do it. We've been doing it for quite a while now. Yeah. Um, you know, right now, a, a typical solar installation will pay for itself in about six years. Mm-hmm. So that means that after six years, you're getting all this electricity for free. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's not a cost. It's an investment. Yeah. And, and that really is thinking about the future. We really need to be able to do this. I, th- I think if, you know, we have a prefrontal cortex, folks, right? Remember, we've spoken about this before, the ability to anticipate the future and what will happen next. Well, if we keep doing what we're doing, I think we're learning more and more what will happen next. And I don't think it's particularly a great thing for us. So we can do something for each other, which brings us to the next truth of the I am. Everyone's got one. Everyone is interested in what you think or feel about them through that I see domain. And, you know, it feels different when you feel respected or disrespected in your biological domain. And you're part of someone's home or social domain. So what this means, the second truth, you control no one, but you influence everyone. And you get to choose the kind of influence you want to be. Dr. Jennifer Francis, what kind of influence do you want to be? So if I were to die tomorrow and um, they were having some sort of a service for me, (laughs) uh, I would like to be known for having helped people realize that the climate crisis is here, it's real, it's something that we can make much less bad if we put our minds to it, um, give people a lot of ideas for how they might do that. Um, so really, I, I want to be an influencer in helping people steer in a better direction, help them uh, understand that you know we do have a recourse here. You don't have to uh, hear all this bad news and just go hide in your bedroom for the rest of your life. I mean, there's way... There's still a lot of beauty in the world. There will be a lot of beauty in the world. And we need to preserve every bit of it that we can for our kids and our grandkids. And I hope that um, I will be known for having uh, helped a few people think more along those lines. You know, this has been an incredibly informative show. And I want to thank you for that. I'm just wondering, just to go back to that, moment for you back in 2012 or probably before when you had your own epiphany when you began to realize this what was that moment like for you i actually remember it um i was we were on a sailing trip sailing has been a big part of my life as as you mentioned um we had taken a year off with our two kids Uh, my husband and i both took sabbaticals from our work and we wanted our kids to experience um, some of the love of traveling in a sailboat that we had uh, done earlier in our lives and we had my husband was running a big company Um, he was working very long hours very long weeks traveling all the time I was a, a professor at Rutgers University I had my own group um it was a very stressful and busy time. I was teaching. I was trying to do research. I was trying to get grant money for my work. Um, it was a lot. And so we decided that we needed to all take a break and spend more time with our kids before they were all grown up and gone. So fortunately, we were able to do this. And, um, and that sabbaticals are, are really, really good. <laughs> they give you time to step away from the very busy life that you've been leading where there's just no time to think. Um, you're, you're just trying to survive. And um, just having that time to step back from all of the work that I had done up to that point and look at it from, as you say, Thomas, a, a holistic or global perspective and understand how these big changes that were already emerging from our observations of the real world, how those were going to affect things like um, like weather patterns, because that's what I knew about, that's what I um, had been trained about. And, you know, it was kind of like, oh my gosh, you know, that's, that's, the jet stream is going to be affected by this really fast warming up in the Arctic. And I know that, you know, I went through this whole 
idea in my head. And then as soon as we got home, I started uh, doing research to see if it was actually true or not, see if there was any evidence of it happening yet. And uh, sure enough, we found some evidence. So um, I was working with a, a, a very close colleague of mine at the University of Washington, uh, sorry, University of Wisconsin, uh, Steve Davis. And to this day, we are we still shake our heads that um, that paper uh, came out and changed our lives in such amazing ways, uh, and we've never looked back. Dr. <laughs> hmm. Francis, how can people find out more about your work? Is there a website? Is there some place they can go? Yeah, so just go to my organization's website. It's the Woodwell Climate Research Center um, in Falmouth, Massachusetts. It's woodwellclimate.org, and um, my research is all listed on my uh, on my own website, which is linked in there. So there's, um, or you could look up, look, Google me. <laughs> um, one place I might send people is I've written three articles for Scientific American about various aspects of what we've been talking about. So one about the Arctic uh, itself and what the changes there mean for um, the larger world. Um, one about connections between the climate system and extreme weather. It's called Rough Weather Ahead. And the last one is all about water vapor. It was called Vapor Storms. Um, and they're all, I hope, written in a way that pretty much anybody could um, understand at least most of it um, and explain how some of these big changes that we've been discussing here today, um, you know, how, why they're happening, how they're happening, and a lot more information there. So I think that would be a good place for your listeners to start. So appreciated. Folks, we can do this, but we have to do this soon. We have to do this together. So, Dr. Jennifer Prince, thank you so much for being a guest on the Dr. Joe Show tonight, giving us a wealth of information. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Tom, I appreciate it, too. Terrific. Tom, we'll see you next week. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks.